0: Following message was recorded at Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. More information can be found online at bethlehem.church. You might remember the evening of Tuesday, November 3rd as a tense election night that didn't conclusively reveal whether President Trump or Joe Biden won the presidential election. I remember that evening much differently because one of my f- my friends who's a pastor of a church in Louisville, Kentucky, Texted this message to me that evening. It said, our elders just got word that Tim Challey's son, Nick, died tonight on his way to the hospital. He was a student at Boyce College, a member of Third Avenue Baptist Church, and engaged to another member in the church. We don't know any details at all why he was going to the hospital, etc. I imagine Tim and Aileen are receiving the news now. Pray for their family. Here's a picture of the Tim Challey's family. That's Nick on the left. So, to hear that sad news about Nick Chalice was a gut punch for me. I was grieving because I love Tim, his dad, Tim Chalice. Tim has been a trusted friend of mine since I was in graduate school. Uh, we worked together on a 2011 Crossway book that Kevin DeYoung edited. At one point, all the authors of that book met together for a few days in a Chicago hotel, and I, I roomed with Tim for that time. Uh, Tim and I typically connect with each other at conferences we're both attending. We regularly communicate by email. Um, We follow each other's writings, which is a bigger commitment for me since Tim posts something new on his website every day. Uh, He's a faithful man. He's got sound theology. He's got good theological instincts. As you can see, he's a father. He's married, father of three. He's a pastor of Grace Fellowship Church in Toronto, Ontario. So that night on November 3rd, when Jenny and I uh, heard the news, we started praying For Tim and Elaine. And the first request that came into my mind was that they would respond like Christians. So I was relieved the next morning to read this on his website. He wrote, In all the years I've been writing, I've never had to type words more difficult, more devastating than these. Yesterday, the Lord called my son to himself, my dear son, my sweet son, my kind son, my godly son, my only son, Nick was playing a game with his sister and fiancé and many other students when he suddenly collapsed, never regaining consciousness. Students, paramedics, and doctors battled valiantly but could not save him. He's with the Lord he loved, the Lord he longed to serve. We have no answers to the what or why questions. Yesterday, Aileen and I cried and cried until we could cry no more, until there were no tears left to cry. Then, Later in the evening, we looked each other in the eye and said, we can do this. We don't want to do this, but we can do this. This sorrow, this grief, this devastation, because we know we don't have to do it in our own strength. We, he says, can do it like Christians. Like a son and daughter of the father who knows what it is to lose a son. Again, he, he lives in Toronto. So he says, we traveled through the night to get to Louisville so we could be together as a family. And we ask that you remember us in your prayers as we mourn our loss together, we know there will be grueling days and sleepless nights ahead. But for now, even though our minds are bewildered and our hearts are broken, our hope is fixed and our faith is holding. Our son is home. Yeah. Man, I cried in the last service, too. I'm trying not to do this. Uh, a few days later at Nick's memorial service, uh, Nick uh, uh, Tim said this about his son, Nick. He said, God called my son, Nick, to run only a short race. Some get 80 years, some get 90. Nick got only 20, but he ran his short race well. Uh, Tim and I were trading emails about this uh, at that time, and he, he wrote an email to me that I asked for permission to share with you, and he granted it. He wrote, Aileen and I resolved very early on that we would respond like Christians. That was our exact wording. I'm learning that while we're extremely sad, it's not been extremely hard to respond like a Christian. We've not once been mad at God. We have not wavered in our confidence that it was as much God's will to take Nick as to give him in the first place. We've never doubted that he has sovereign rights to do as he pleases and that all that he pleases is good. It's been tremendously encouraging to see how God has sustained us in this. We know we have a long road to walk still, but God has been so good, so kind, so true to each and every one of his promises. Joy and sorrow can coexist. These are still early days, but I do wonder if there's a certain height of joy that can really be understood or experienced only within or alongside a certain depth of sorrow. I don't know that yet. I don't have a life experience, but I'm beginning to wonder. You know that line I underlined? Joy and sorrow can coexist. That's what this sermon is about. So, our text is the book of Habakkuk, specifically the, the last chapter, chapter 3. And Habakkuk in this book is wrestling with the emotional tension that people feel when they or those close to them suffer. And this can happen to a person who loves and trusts God, it can happen to you. You may be convinced that God exists, that he is all-powerful, that he's all-good, but you may be unsettled about how to make sense of how an all-powerful and all-good God harmonizes with heartache and with what seems like injustice in this broken world, especially when that heartache hits close to home. It's easy, relatively easy, to, to joyfully trust God when everything feels like it's going your way. But how can you joyfully trust God when you don't understand? You don't understand how God's ways are just and good. How can you make, make sense of all that? How, how do you face the most challenging circumstances without falling apart, but instead joyfully trusting God? Well, there are many ways to approach that question. We're going to approach it by looking at Habakkuk chapter three. So I'd like to preach to you from Habakkuk three on this subject how to joyfully trust God when your life seems unfair. How to joyfully trust God when your life seems unfair. How do we do that? Well, see at least three three steps in this book. And the first one is to speak to God honestly. And I'm, I'm drawing here mainly from earlier in the book. So I'm, I'm citing 1, chapter 1, verses 2 to 4, and one twelve to 2, 1. So uh, this is what Habakkuk does when he twice complains to God earlier in the book. So let's just quickly summarize that back-and-forth dialogue. So in 1, 2 to 4, Habakkuk is, is speaking honestly to God by complaining that God appears not to hear him when he's crying out for help in the midst of widespread injustice in, in society. He asks in Habakkuk 1.3, why do you make me see iniquity and why do you so idly look at wrong? And he's looking around at his own people in, in Judah. In other words, you could paraphrase it. God, why are you tolerating injustice among your people? So he's, he's, he's complaining in a sense. I, I don't understand this. And then in 1.5-11, God answers Habakkuk and basically says, Habakkuk, I will punish Judah for her wickedness and I will use Babylon to do it. And it's that next line, I'll use Babylon to do it. It's like, whoa, whoa, how can that be? So that caused him to go in a spin again. And in, in the next section, 112 to 2 1. Habakkuk speaks to God honestly by complaining that God plans to use wicked Babylon to punish Judah. It doesn't seem fair. That doesn't seem right to Habakkuk, because he thought Babylon was much worse than Judah. He asks in 113, "God, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? How can Babylon swallow up Judah? It doesn't seem fair. One way to paraphrase it is God, why are you tolerating wicked people to conquer and mistreat your people? It doesn't seem fair. In the rest of chapter 2, God responds to Habakkuk's questions. You could paraphrase it this way Habakkuk, righteous people live by faith. It's by faith in me, it's a faith that sees beyond your difficult circumstances. And don't worry, I'll hold Babylon accountable for their wickedness. And that brings us to our text. So we have Habakkuk, God, Habakkuk, God, and the book ends with a prayer to God by Habakkuk. And you could paraphrase it this way: God, you are supremely powerful and just, and I joyfully trust you. So, throughout this book, Habakkuk is speaking to God honestly, and when he does that earlier in the book, especially in his in his first and second prayers. You might wonder, Whoa, is it okay to talk to God like that? What do you think? Well, it's not okay to express sinful anger toward God. It's never okay to do that. That's always sin. But it is okay to express sorrow. Read the Psalms. It's okay to express how sorrowful you are. It's okay to grieve. This is a broken world, and it's not like God doesn't know what you're thinking or feeling anyway. It's okay to express to God that you don't understand what he's doing. You don't understand how he's using injustice to accomplish his purposes, as long as you do that respectfully. So here at the end of the book, chapter 3, Habakkuk once again prays to God, and this time his closing prayer resolves the book. This is resolution. So let's let's look at the first line. A prayer of Habakkuk, the prophet, according to Shigianoth. This is like a, a bookend with the very last line in chapter 3. And it's a short introduction where uh, Habakkuk is in, intending for this poetry to be put into song. In between, verses 2 to the beginning of 19, are, are two parts. So you have verses 2 through 15, and then verses 16 to the beginning of 19. Those are the two parts of this prayer. That's how we'll look at it in a moment. Now, a, a, a prayer for Bacchus, the prophet according to Shiginoth. You might look at that word and go, what is that? And uh, I don't have a good answer for you. Uh, it's probably a literary term, a musical term. Lots of people speculate on what it means. I'm not sure anyone knows for sure. Uh, verse 2, O Lord, I've heard the report of you and your work, O Lord, do I fear In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. He's saying, I've heard about your fame. I'm in awe of your deeds. Would you please repeat those deeds in our time? Make them known today. When you cause turmoil, remember to show us mercy. That's how the prayer begins. He's speaking to God honestly. So when you are going through difficult circumstances, suffering, injustice. You don't know how to make sense of it. and Your first, first thing you can do is talk to God about it honestly. Don't isolate yourself from God. Go to God. Talk to him about what you're seeing. And that's the easiest step. It's to it's tell him why you're sorrowful. The second one takes way more work. It's this. Think deeply about God, who he is, what he's done, and what he will do. Think deeply about God. A key passage in this book is 2-4. The righteous man will live by his faith. You have to ask, faith in in what? Faith faith in whom? It's faith in God. So then who is God? What is God like? Before I read verses 3-15, through let me just remind you of some earlier passages in Scripture that tell us what God is like. Exodus 34, The Lord, the Lord, the Lord, A God merciful. This is God describing himself. A God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the father on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. That's God describing himself to Moses. Moses later writes a song that has this line from Deuteronomy 32. The rock, his work is perfect for all his ways, are justice, all of them, a God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. That's our God. Reminds me of a prayer that Abraham prayed, Genesis 22. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? So among other qualities... God is just. All his ways are justice. The judge of all the earth always does what is right, even when we don't understand what he's doing. Just think about that. Think deeply about that. Become preoccupied with that. Meditate on that. That will help you when you're having a hard time joyfully trusting God when your life seems unfair. Now let's examine what, what Habakkuk prays in verses 3 to 15. In this section, 3 to 15, it's a psalm. It's poetry. And and Habakkuk is drawing from earlier in the book to depict God. When I say earlier in the book, I mean earlier in the Bible. So, previous revelation. He's drawing from previous scripture to depict God as a glorious Savior and as a powerful, unbeatable warrior. So, let's start reading verse 3. God came from Teman and the Holy One from Mount Paran. So Tiemens, that's a region in Eden, south of the Dead Sea. That title, Holy One, it's a beautiful title. It's emphasizing that God upholds justice without partiality. He's holy. And the, these first two lines, I think what they're doing, it, it's a prayer picturing God moving from Sinai through Edom into Palestine, which is a land for his people to possess. So Habakkuk is highlighting when God has already delivered Israel in the past to anticipate that God will deliver Israel again in the future. And this, this term, Selah, man, I, scholars are not sure what that means. I always wonder if I'm reading publicly. Do I read it? Do I, do I not read it? Do I pause? I've, I've pulled all my Old Testament scholar friends and none of them know either. Uh, it's probably some kind of structural marker, maybe a musical term. That's all I got. Sorry. Okay, next line. His splendor covered the heavens, the skies. And the earth was full of his praise. So his glory fills the earth. And this, this whole section right here that you can see on the screen, verses 3 to 7, this is a unit. And these are depicting God as glorious when he delivers his people. So this is showing him vignettes of him delivering his people. And, and Abacus is in awe of him when he does that. Verse 4. His brightness was like the light. Bright as lightning. So rays or lightning bolts flash from his hand. And there he unveiled his power. There he unveiled his power. The meaning of that line to me is unclear. The point may be that, that lightning bolts merely cover uh, uh, him, or like an outward display of, of God's power. Next line, verse 5. Before him went pestilence and plague followed at his heels. Pestilence and plague. He's personifying those like they're God's soldiers that he sends before him and that come behind him. In Exodus and Leviticus and Deuteronomy, God uses pestilence and plagues to judge people. Verse 6, he, he stood and measured or shook the earth. He looked and shook the nations. So he's making the nations jump in fear. But the mere look, he frightens them. The, then the eternal or, or ancient mountains were scattered. They crumbled. The everlasting, ancient, age-old hills sank low. They collapsed. They're flattened. His ways, his word, the everlasting ways, ancient ways or his doings are his. Wow. And this is picturing God as, as powerful, unbeatable, When he arrives to deliver his people. Last lines, verse 7. I saw the tents of Cushan in affliction. The curtains of the land of Midian did tremble. Cushan, that's southern Transjordan. So I think it's the same. Nearby Arab tribes quaked in fear when they saw God's power. I think this is alluding to the invading Midianites when God used Gideon as a judge to deliver his people in Judges 7. Now notice In this, verses 3 to 7, every time he refers to God, it's in the third person. It's God, his, his, uh, his hand, his power, him. He's he's speaking in the third person. When we go to verse 8 and following, it changes to your, 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 you. He he switches from from third person to second person. And in this next section, verses 8 through 15, Habakkuk is, is, is like he's painting a collage, and this collage of images anticipates that God will come to powerfully and decisively judge his enemies. That's what we'll see next. So look at verse 8. Was your wrath against the rivers, O Lord? Was your anger against the rivers or your indignation against the sea when you rode on your horses on your chariot of salvation? So this, this is one big rhetorical question, and the answer is... No, no. When, when God parted the waters of the Red Sea, Exodus 14, and parted the waters of the Jordan River in Joshua 3 and 2 Kings 2, he did that for his people. He wasn't angry with the water. He was angry with the enemies of his people. That's, that's where his anger was directed. Verse 9, you, you strip the sheath from your bows. You, you get your bow out and it's ready to use, uh, calling for many arrows. You, you split the earth with rivers. I think it means you cause flash floods. On the earth's surface. So flooding cuts through, cuts streams through the desert. Verse 10 the mountains saw you and writhed, they trembled. The raging water swept on. The deep gave forth its voice. It lifted its hands on high in submission. Verse 11 the sun and moon stood still in their place in the sky. I think that alludes to the long day in Joshua 10. At the light of your arrows they sped, at the flash of your glittering spear. I think that's, it means that means the, at the brightness of the lightning of your spear, the the bright light of your lightning-quick spear. Verse 12, you marched through the earth in fury. It's like you're furiously stomping on them. You threshed or trampled the nations in anger. Sounds like Amos 1. You went out for the salvation of, to save, to deliver your people, for the salvation of your anointed. That word anointed, you could translate anointed one. It could refer to an individual like the Davidic king. Or it could refer to the covenant people of Israel who were a kingdom of priests. Next line, you crushed the head of the house of the wicked. When you hear those words, crushed the head, you should be thinking Genesis 3.15 and the trajectory of school crushing of, of God's enemies throughout the Bible. That, and the, and the, the climax of that is when, when Jesus crushes Satan at the cross. So uh, th- you strike the leader of, of the wicked nation here. And laying him bare from thigh to neck, from thigh to neck. That's an, uh, a figure of speech that we would say from head to toe, from head to head to foot. It's a decisive defeat. Verse 14, you pierced with his own arrows the heads of his warriors who came like a whirlwind to scatter me. That word me, it, it is me uh, in Hebrew. Most English translations say us. So if you have another translation, it probably says us. The reason is Habakkuk is representing God's people. And hence, uh, some translations say us. It's it's God's people rejoicing or or gloating as if to devour the poor in secret. Uh, The NLT, the New Living Translation, renders verse 14 pretty well. It captures the meaning. It says, with his own weapons, you destroyed the chief of those who rushed out like a whirlwind, thinking Israel would be easy prey. That's the idea. And last, last two lines here. You trampled the sea with your horses, the surging of mighty waters. So your, your horses charged into the Red Sea and stirred up the great waters. All these images in verses 8 to 15 are painting a collage that God will come in the future to powerfully and decisively judge his enemies. That's what God has done in the past, and that's what he'll do in the future. He's supremely powerful and just. That's what Habakkuk is preoccupied with when he's thinking about God. So how do you joyfully trust God when your life seems unfair? First, you speak to God honestly. Then you think deeply about God, who he is, what he's done, what he will do. And that leads to this climax, step three, which makes sense only if you've thought deeply about who God is. Once you've thought deeply about God, it should lead directly to this final step, which is to resolve, to rejoice in God. Remember, in Habakkuk 1 and 2, there's this back and forth between Habakkuk and God, and now at the end, that tension escalates and beautifully resolves. Verse 16, I hear, and my body trembles. It's like my stomach is churning. My lic- lips quiver at the sound. I'm quivering in fear. Rottenness centers my bones, decay. My legs tremble beneath me. It's like my legs, my legs give way beneath me. I'm so scared. He, He's thinking deeply about God, and he's stunned. He's in awe. He's, he's devastated that God will use Babylon to invade his people. But yet, I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon the people who invade us. In other words, when calamity will come on Babylon. He's resolving to wait patiently for God to judge Babylon. He recognizes that difficult times are coming. Verse 17, though the fig tree should not blossom. Nor fruit be on the vines. It's grapes be on the vines. I love grapes. The produce of the olive fail. The fields yield no food. No no food production. The flock be cut off from the fold. No sheep in the pen. No herd in the stalls. No cattle in the stalls. Just stop there. Verse 17. I was thinking, this is dire. How would we say this today in a, in a middle class suburb? Maybe something like this. Though Costco stores are shut down, along with Aldi and Cub and all the rest, and though the farms no longer produce dairy products or chicken or beef or fresh fruit and vegetables, and though we lose access to clean water and sanitation, something like that. This is bad. You know, and and even though difficult times are coming, you see the word yet. Even though difficult times are coming, Habakkuk resolves to rejoice in the Lord. I will rejoice in the Lord. I'll exult. I'll celebrate in the Lord. I will take joy. I'll be joyful, be happy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength. He's my source of strength. He makes, me, he makes my feet like the deer. He makes me as sure-footed as the deer. He makes me tread on high places. He enables me to tread on the heights, to walk on the mountain heights. God will strengthen Habakkuk and enable him to survive difficult times. Just like a deer can skillfully walk on steep mountains without falling. And the very last line is the bookend to the choirmaster with stringed instruments. Remember, this is a song, a prayer for the song leader, and it's to be accompanied by string instruments. So uh, Habakkuk resolves to rejoice in the Lord no matter how dire the circumstances. Verse 18 reminds me a lot of, of one of Paul's lines in Philippians. Remember you have it memorized? Philippians 4, four. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again I say rejoice because he says this twice. I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. But that just raises the question, how? How does this work? Is it, is it like a light switch where the room is dark? Flip the switch and we have light. So I'm, I'm sorrowful Okay, I'm going to take joy in the Lord, flip, now I'm happy. Is it? Is it like that? Is it like a light switch? I don't think so. And there's, there's one passage in Scripture that encapsulates this, but before I tell you what that is, I want to tell you a story about it. So I've had the joy, the privilege, of teaching systematic theology and New Testament at Bethlehem College and Seminary since 2013. Prior to that, I had a job interview. So this is November 2012. And it was a long one. Uh, John Piper, Tim Tomlinson, a search team. And it was mostly John Piper asking hours of questions that were very hard. And one of the questions went something like this. Uh, We're Christian hedonists. so We we believe that we most glorify God when he most satisfies us. God's most glorified in us when we're most satisfied in him. Uh, So do you think it's possible for a Christian to be sorrowful and joyful at the same time? And how, how would that look emotionally? I'm thinking this has got to be a trick question. Uh, I think I said something like, well, uh, in in, in Romans 12, Paul commands Christians to rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. So I'd imagine uh, one person can obey both those commands at the same time. Uh, So you might have a circle of friends. One of them experienced a miscarriage. One of them lost his job. Another one uh, just got married. Another one, you know, there are people who are sad, people who are happy, and you are being sad and happy with them at the same time. And if finite people can do that, it seems uh, like we can do that because we're made in God's image, and God is the one who supremely does that. He knows of all the reasons for sorrow in the world, all the sin, all the sadness, and he knows all the reasons for happiness at this moment and for all time. And, and John Piper said something like, uh, I think the best way to in, uh, articulate this is—he was—he was—he was being nice—is uh, how—is how Paul describes himself in Second Corinthians six ten. As sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. As sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. Does that sound like a contradiction to you? Because it's. For most people, that is a contradiction. You think, if I'm sorrowful, I'm not rejoicing. If I'm rejoicing, I'm not sorrowful. It's one or the other. They're polar opposites, right? Well, that's not how Scripture talks about God's people. God enables us to be sorrowful and to rejoice at the same time. Remember what Tim Challies wrote in that email to me? He said, joy and sorrow can coexist. And Habakkuk shows us what this looks like. He was sorrowful, deeply distressed that Judah is evil. There's wickedness all around him. Then he's further distressed that God is going to use Babylon to punish Judah. He's, he's deep in the pit. He is sorrowful. This is national calamity, personal calamity. He's deeply sorrowful. And at the same time, it's not like that, like, like that gets erased. At the same time, he resolves... I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. Simultaneously, they're happening. And he, does, he gets from there to here after he thinks deeply about who God is. That's the connection. Now, this reminds me of what was probably Jonathan Edwards' first sermon. He preached it, I think, at age 18. It's called Christian Happiness. His thesis is this. A good man is a happy man. Whatever his outward circumstances are. It's a good thesis. It gives three reasons the good man is happy in whatever condition he's in. Number one, because no worldly evils can do him any real hurt. Number two, because of the spiritual privileges and advantages, joys, and satisfactions he actually enjoys while in this life. God forgives our sins. He has declared us righteous. He loves us. He's adopted us. We enjoy that right now. And then third, because of the joyful hope and assured expectation of the enjoyment of the completion of happiness eternally hereafter. You have to read that a few times to make sure you get it. Basically saying, the best is yet to come. And it's that third reason that the best is yet to come reminds me of an illustration John Newton used to give. Where he said, suppose a man was going to New York to take possession of a large estate and his carriage should break down a mile before he got to the city, which obliges him to walk the rest of the way. What a fool! We should think him if we saw him wringing his hands and blubbering out all the remaining mile." My carriage is broken. My carriage is broken. That's kind of a picture of what we're like when we experience some kind of suffering, some kind of hardship, and we view it in a very temporal lens instead of a wide-angle lens that thinks about this current hardship in light of what's coming. So brothers and sisters, I'd like to exhort you to believe Romans 5, 2 through 5. This passage, uh, Romans 5 begins, Therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, through the Lord Jesus Christ, we've also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And, number one, we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Number two, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. Why? Why? knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. So look at the first uh, rejoicing there. We rejoice in hope of the glory of God. We exult in hope of the glory of God. That word hope translates a word That does not mean hope the way most of us use it. Like my daughters will say, I hope it snows on Christmas Day this year. It might snow on Christmas Day, but it might not. That's not what this word hope means. This is something that we are confidently expecting. It will happen. This hope of the glory of God is our confident expectation that God will glorify us. So it's easy to see how we rejoice in that. We are rejoicing in our confident expectation that God will glorify us. Yes. But look at the next line. And not only that, but we also rejoice in our sufferings. What? In our sufferings? Sufferings are hard. Sufferings are not pleasant. They're distressful. They're painful. Why would we rejoice in that? Well, the next lines explain why. Because we know that God uses suffering to produce endurance. Problems and trials help us develop endurance, and that produces character, and that produces hope. God designs our sufferings to build us up so that we confidently expect him to do what he has promised. Do you believe that? Well, this time I invite the music team to join me on the stage uh, to prepare to sing our closing song. I'd like to ask you to reflect on this one more time. So, how do you joyfully trust God when your life seems unfair? Remember, speak to God honestly. Just express to Him your struggles, your your frustration, your bewilderment. That's okay to speak to God that way. Second, think deeply about God—who He is, what He's done, what He will do. Remember, he's supremely powerful and just. He's always just and always good. And then resolve to rejoice in God. Back to the story about Nick Chalice, son of Tim challies So at the memorial service for Nick Chalice earlier this month, Tim's fellow pastor preached from Job. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. He quoted that again yesterday morning during the funeral service. For Nick Challies. That's another way of saying, though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. I'd like us to respond. To this passage of Scripture, by singing together, William Cooper's hymn, Sometimes a Light Surprises. And the final stanza paraphrases the end of Habakkuk. Though fine nor fig tree neither their wanted fruits should bear, though all the field should wither, nor flocks nor herds be there, yet God, the same abiding, his praise shall tune my voice. For while in him confiding, that's me speaking honestly to God, while in him confiding, I cannot but rejoice. Let's respond together by rejoicing in God. Thank you for listening to this message from Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others. But please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Bethlehem Baptist Church. For more information, we invite you to visit us online at Bethlehem.church